Hey, uh, about 100 ladies up on the mountain. They'll be back this afternoon. We're excited to, to have them back. Certainly, they're going to be just full of, of our Lord Jesus Christ and uh, what he's done in their lives. Good to have you here with us this morning. Wasn't that a great intro video? As we uh, start off a brand new teaching series, we desperately need this, especially after working our way through the book of Judges this week. When I opened up my Bible, my Bible automatically opened up to Judges. I don't know why. We spent the whole summer working our way through the book of Judges, and man, what a crazy, wild ride, and finished up last weekend. If you didn't get a chance to hear that message, you need to go online and listen to it. It's, it's quite a, a hard message, but it's an important message, and now we head into grace, freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free, Galatians 5.1. Uh, that's the, the sub-theme of this whole series uh, based on Galatians 5.1. Galatians, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians. We're going to talk about what is the gospel. And also grab your sermon notes. There is no greater feeling on earth than being free. Ask anyone who has stepped out of prison, broken free from oppression, or has kicked an enslaving addiction. With confident expectation, they begin a new life. Even more freedom and joy beyond words are those who have experienced the message found in the New Testament letter of Galatians. We're going to spend the rest of the year in this New Testament letter of Galatians, and we're just going to bathe and bask in the gospel of grace. It's just, uh, and I, I guarantee you that if you hang out with us, it will make a major difference in your life. In this letter, Paul expounds in detail what the gospel is and how it works. Oftentimes when, when I talk about the gospel, immediately people think of, they think of uh, people that uh, don't know Christ. They think that the gospel is primarily for helping people to become converts, but that is not true. And in fact, the gospel isn't the ABCs to the Christian life. It is the A to Z, as we will discover as we work our way through uh, Galatians. And not only that, it's not just for reaching seekers, it's also about building believers. You uh, never go beyond the gospel, you just go deeper into the gospel. And uh, you are never freer than when you are living out the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, if there isn't this uh, amazing freedom that you're experiencing today as it relates to the gospel, then there's elements of the gospel that you still need to learn and understand. Let me start off with a story here before we head into our text and then unpack these notes. And we're only going to be reading the first five verses and we'll be taking a chunk every week of this book. But uh, let me share this story with you to kind of help set, set us up here. Back in the late 1730s, there was a little group led by John and Charles Wesley who changed the world. This little group of people were hungry for God, desperately wanting a sense of his presence on their hearts and lives. And one night, it began to happen when one of the members of this group, a man named William Holland, got a hold of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And if you're familiar with who Martin Luther is in this particular book, this is the book, the book of Galatians is what revolutionized Martin Luther's life. The message of Galatians is the book that transformed Martin, Luther, Martin Luther's life and thrust him into what what is known as the Reformation. If you're familiar with church history, Reformation, 1500s, and that's why we are called Protestants to, today, because he protested against the Roman Catholic Church, and there's this whole branch of Christianity, and, and this particular book revolutionized his life, and in the very beginning of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, there's a preface in which he tries to summarize the basic argument of, of Paul in Galatians. 
So William Holland brought it to Charles Wesley along with a few others and they began to read it together and William Holland later on wrote down what happened that night. Let me, let me uh, read to you what happened that night to them. He said, Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud and at a certain point he says, there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled, so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions perceiving uh, me so affected fell on their knees and prayed. And when, uh, afterwards, when I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely fill the ground I trod upon. What was happening here? That sounds like a crazy story. They were encountering the gospel of grace. They were encountering the Lord Jesus Christ just through the preface of this book as they begin to understand the essence of what Christianity is about. What is the gospel? And out of this came what is known by historians as the Great Awakening. And there was a great movement in which hundreds of thousands of people on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, Europe and Great Britain and America were greatly impacted. This movement changed the face of Western society there were hundreds of thousands of people who met Christ, were converted, came into churches, started new churches. John and Charles Wesley went on to establish what is known as the Methodist Church. I mean, it's absolutely astounding. And basically, it's, it's just uh, what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. You familiar with that? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The oh, wow, that really was kind of weak. And maybe you're not familiar with it like I am. I mean, it's like, oh, what is it? What is it? The oh, power. No, it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's the power of God. How many are familiar with it now that I've brought it up? Well, not as many as that you should. There's an amazing amount of dynamite, power in the gospel to transform our lives. And that's what they, they experienced in this. And, and I bring this up kind of as... Uh, it's kind of a foundation of what we're going to study here this morning as we embark upon this study through the book of Galatians, is that if there aren't times during your Bible study, during your prayer, during your life group interaction, weekend services, involvement in serving others through various ministries, if there aren't times during those times or maybe throughout the week when it dawns on you what you have in the gospel and you begin to think about the implications of what you have in the gospel, and you begin to feel like a person who has just won a billion-dollar lottery. If there aren't times in your life where that's beginning to happen, or, or it begins to dawn on you and you go, wow, I've never been more loved. I've never experienced more joy, regardless of whatever is going on in your life, circumstances, people, things. I've never had more peace guard my heart and mind. See, see, if that's not happening, if, if you don't have that overwhelming sense from time to time that this, is, this gospel message is more than I deserve and greater than I could ever dream, then, then you don't know or understand or applying the gospel like you could or should. There's so much more. There's so much more. Listen to me. There's so much more to the gospel. And that's... I'm excited about this new study because we're going we're gonna to spend the rest of the year just looking at the gospel, just savoring it, enjoying it, 
basking in it, bathing in what God has for us. And so, hey, before we read the text, let's pray. We need some help this morning as we dive into this text and unpack these notes. God, we are delighted to be here today. And as we were singing these songs about the freedom that we have through Jesus Christ, God, we... We love you, we're excited, we're thankful for the power that we have through Jesus Christ. And as we together as a church family embark upon a study of the book of Galatians and come face to face with the gospel of grace, may there be an explosion of joy and freedom filling us with a deep significance, security and satisfaction in Christ Jesus unlike we have ever experienced before making us passionate to see it do the same work in the lives of our family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers throughout this community for your glory, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. Let's begin reading Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. This is the greeting. Uh, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Right off the bat, man, he lays it down. He shows us his authority, where he's coming from. And then verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And then in verses 3 through 5, he gives us really the gospel. The whole gospel is found right here in these three verses. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. This is God's word to us this morning. Now, here we go. You'll notice on your notes, we're gonna talk about three, three big ideas from this text, these five verses. The significance of what we believe, the significance of why we believe what we believe, and then the significance of what Christians believe. We're gonna talk about the gospel, so that's where we're headed. So first of all, the significance of what we believe, our belief system, our worldview. By the way, everybody has a belief system, everybody has a worldview. Even if you classify yourself as an atheist, you have a belief system, and you, that's what you operate from, some sort of a belief system. And notice what he says in verse two, to the churches of Galatia. The churches uh, Paul planted in Galatia are being assaulted by false teachers and false doctrine. And so this letter is what is known as a polemical letter. You guys familiar with the word polemics? Anybody? Anybody know what polemics is? I don't either, so I guess we're out of luck here this morning, huh? Uh, no, I know exactly what polemics is all about. Polemics is a strong verbal or written attack on someone or something. And... Uh, it is a strong written attack against the false teachers. So this is a polemical letter written to, it's written as an attack against the false teachers and false teaching that is coming through and infiltrating the ranks here among the churches in Galatia. Now commentators have noticed that this letter of Paul is different from all of his other letters. There's no word of thanksgiving in the beginning. Part of his salutation is not, hey, I just want to tell you that I'm really excited and I, we love you guys and all. He doesn't do that. I mean, he opens up a can right from the get-go. I mean, this is, he comes with, uh, starts with guns blazing. We didn't read the part, but notice in verse 6, if you have your Bibles open, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. So these people are, are, are missing the gospel. He had brought them the gospel of grace, and now these false teachers are perverting it and, and changing it, and he's frightened for them, as you will see. It's really important to stay on board with the gospel, to understand what the gospel is. Now, we live in a country today where people 
in America, people in our culture would say, hey, people have a right to believe what they want to believe. And you shouldn't be telling people what to believe. And by the way, when people say that, you're doing the very thing you're telling people not to do. You guys understand that? So if you tell me, you shouldn't be telling, what people, you shouldn't be telling people what to believe, then you're telling me what to believe and what not to do. And so you're doing the very same thing that I'm doing. You're just as guilty if you're telling me not to tell people what to believe because you're telling me what to believe by saying that. And people do that all the time. You shouldn't be telling people what to believe. Well, you're telling me what to believe by not telling people what to believe. Are you as confused as I am? Okay, maybe not. No, because that's very true when people say that. And uh, we live in a culture that says that. That, that is a belief system in itself. And uh, as I stated, you're doing the very thing that you're accusing others of doing. Now, let me ask you some questions. Why did the Nazis kill millions of Jews and Eastern European people? This would be the question I would ask that person that says, hey, you shouldn't be trying to tell people what to believe. I know you're a pastor, but you shouldn't be telling them what to believe. And I would say, so let me ask you this. Why did Nazis kill millions of Jews and Eastern Europe people? Why did they do that? Well, because they're evil. Well, well, yeah, and I would agree that they're evil. Based on my belief system, they're certainly evil, but they didn't think that they were evil. In fact, they didn't get together with others and say, hey, let's do something really evil. They were doing what they believed. In fact, they did that because they believed that some races are subhuman and not worthy to live. It was based on their belief system. Let me ask you another question. Why is ISIS in a radical holy war against anyone who is not Muslim? And you will say, well, it's, it's really evil. Yeah, of course it is. I believe it's evil too, but they don't think it's evil. And in fact, they're doing that because they believe that anyone who doesn't embrace Islam is an infidel worthy of death. Now, we as Christians, I mean, we believe that every person is created in the image of God and of great worth, value, and honor, regardless of their beliefs. That's what we believe, but they don't believe that. They believe that people should be annihilated. So that's a belief system. Let me ask you another question. You got two guys... They go, into, they go in for an interview for the same job. Neither one gets the job, but both have totally different responses. One becomes depressed, wants to throw in the towel, and one becomes even more determined than ever. Why is that? It's not the circumstances. It's their belief system. It's their beliefs about their circumstances. We teach that all the time here. It's what you're saying to yourself about your circumstances. It's their belief system. Have you ever tried to talk a friend out of depression or suicide? Yeah. I've tried to talk a lot of people out of, out of uh, depression and suicide. W what are you doing when you do that? You are contradicting their false beliefs. You're trying to contradict their false beliefs. You're trying to give them good, healthy beliefs as opposed to unhealthy beliefs because their unhealthy beliefs are destroying them. Here's your point. First point, fill in the blank on your notes. Everything about you is based on your beliefs. Everything about you is based on your beliefs. Proverbs 4.23, it says, above all else, guard your heart, guard your beliefs, because it is the course in life that you will go. It is the direction you will go with your life. Matthew 6.21 says pretty much the same. Where your treasure is, the things that you most value, that are most important to you, it's based on your value system, based on your belief system. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Um, there's uh, another verse, Luke 6, 43 through 45, good, a good tree. So it's the root system, it's the beliefs, your beliefs that determine 
you know, whether or not you're going to have good fruit in your life. If you look at the fruit, if you, have, if you don't have fruit in your life, you've got to look at the root. The root. What are, what are your beliefs? What are you saying to yourself about what's going on in your life? Are you aligning them up with God's word? Do you understand what God's word, word teaches and speaks? One of my favorite stories to really understand the impact of our beliefs upon our lives and our behavior is the ring bear story. How many remember the ring bear story? It's kind of a classic story. A lot of you don't, don't know the story, so let me share the story with you. It's the one that we, kinda, we share consistently in the game of life. By the way, if you haven't taken the game of life, that would be a good class for you to take. Kicking off here in a few weeks on Tuesday night, I have the privilege of teaching that. But uh, the ring bear story is about a little ring bear who uh, is just the cutest little guy, about five or six years old, wearing his little tux. And as he would walk down the aisle, as ring bears do, with the rings on the pillow, with each step, he would kind of take one of these little wedding march steps, and as he would do that, he would turn to the audience on each side of him and go, and then he'd take another step and then do the same thing. He did it all the way, kind of stole the party, stole the show, everybody laughed, thought it was funny, until they went and asked him during the reception, they said, so, um, we're trying to figure out, so what exactly were you, were you doing as you were growling at people as you were walking down the aisle carrying the rings? And he said to them, it's because I am the ring bear. Bear. And they go, no, you're the ring bearer. And, and so in his little mind, when they said, you're the ring bearer, he didn't hear bearer. He doesn't know what a bearer is. It doesn't make any sense to him. And so he was living out of what he believed, what he believed about what his job was. And he was doing a really a great job as the ring bearer, as a ring bearer, not as a ring bearer. And, and this is what's fascinating about that. So, so our beliefs determine our behavior. And this is what's fascinating about this is that even a lie believed to be true will affect your life as if it were true. And some of us look pretty silly as we walk down the aisle going, at people, and we're going, what are you, why are you acting like that? Don't you know that Jesus loves you and cares for you? And we're acting a little peculiar sometimes, especially when, when circumstances don't go the way we think that they should, or we're kind of like freaking out over people in our lives and things like that. We're going, why are you doing that? Don't you know who you are in Jesus? So our beliefs have a major impact on our behavior. And then here's the next, uh, next thing that we need to know is that you won't be able to help yourself or others if you can't make a distinction between what is true and what is false. Verse one, Paul says, an apostle, not, not, I mean, right off the bat, not from men nor through man. I mean, he's establishing his authority and uh, Paul is not afraid to say no. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. Remember Jesus? Jesus said, if you are really my disciple, you will continue in my word, and you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? Will set you free. The truth will set you free. And so to the degree that you're not living in truth is to the degree you're not going to be experiencing the freedom that Christ has for you. In fact, to the degree that you believe lies is to the degree that's going to hold you captive in bondage in your life. You're not going to be experiencing all that Christ has for you. First uh, Timothy 4.16, Apostle Paul tells Timothy, he says, hey, listen, man, watch your doctrine and your life closely. He's saying, hey, well, look at your life. Is your life, is how you behave consistent with what you believe? 
And, and what is it that you believe? Do you understand what you believe? Do you know what you believe? Make sure you understand what, is, what it is that you believe because it's going to have an impact on, on your life and how you're living out your life. And then Hebrews 5.14 says that it's really a characteristic of the mature to be able to distinguish uh, truth from error. And... Um, this, la- this letter has, has changed the face of Western civilization. Paul is not afraid to say no. We can't be afraid to say this is true and this is false in our politically correct society. Um, and in fact, anyone who would uh, claim that all religions are equally right, and I hear that a lot in our pluralistic world, that all religions are equally right, has obviously not looked very closely at all of these religions teach because there's major, major contradiction. It would be, it's contrary to the law of non-contradiction, which is part of uh, uh, just understanding just how you rationalize and how you work through the basic laws of logic. That's one of the three laws of logic, and it violates that law of logic. And so it doesn't make any sense. And this is what I find in Christianity is that uh, oftentimes new Christians aren't very discerning. They're, they're just like children. I read a, uh, heard a story of a, a father who was trying to help his son, little boy, another uh, four, five-year-old, six-year-old, uh, that he was trying to teach him to beware of stranger danger, stranger danger. There's bad people out there, and you got to be aware of this. So he's trying to help him to understand uh, this, and this little boy kind of got frustrated. and said, Dad, I know bad people when I see them. And his dad says, oh, oh, okay, do you? So tell me, what does a bad person look like? And the little boy goes, bad people look like this. And he had this kind of face like that, and the dad goes, mm, no, not quite. And uh, what I found interesting in that story is I, I see the same thing happen with many new believers uh, especially when I'm trying to bring some correction to their theology that they heard maybe on TV or they got it in a Christian bookstore, and I say, hey, that's not good theology. That's not very healthy. In fact, it's heretical. It's, it's heresy. And the, the, oftentimes the response is, yeah, but they're really nice people. Oh, yeah, I know that. They're probably not going to come after you like this and go, I'm a bad person. I'm going to get you. <clears throat> kind of, they're not... They're not going to show that. They're going to, there probably are going to be nice people. These are probably real nice, nice people that came and began to infiltrate the churches, but their theology was whacked. It wasn't consistent with the Bible. It was heresy, and that's what he's frightened of, that this is going to have an impact on your life. It's going to be destructive to your life. And so we have to learn how to be discerning. We, we have got to make a distinction between truth and error. And here's the next point on your notes. Tolerance isn't about equal validity of beliefs. It is about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. And the Bible over and over again says that you will treat people with gentleness and respect, 1 Peter 3.15, also Colossians 4.6. And so, so the significance of what we believe, wow, Everything about us is based on our beliefs. We need to be able to make a distinction between true and false, and we need to do this with gentleness and respect. Now, let's take this to the next thought in the notes here as it relates to this text, the significance of why we believe what we believe. So not only do we need to know what we believe, but we need to know why we believe what we believe. What is the basis of our beliefs? What is the foundation of our faith? What is the credibility of our creed? It is important to not only know what you believe, but why you believe what you believe. Neglect the why 
you'll drift from the what. I mean, I, I, I see that all the time. They know the what, but they don't know the why. And guess what? When crisis and difficulty and suffering comes to their life, because they don't have a good solid foundation for their beliefs, they're gonna drift from those beliefs. I see that happen all the time. Or when, when a skeptic comes and begins to question you about your beliefs, I mean, your, your beliefs go right out the window because you have no basis for it. You know what you believe, but you don't know why you believe what you believe. There's no foundation. And what's fascinating here in verse one, Paul says this, Paul, an apostle, right off the bat, means sent, not from men nor from nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, now there's two kinds of apostles. There's an apostle with a little a, and we see those throughout Scripture, and those are like Barnabas found in 2 Corinthians 8.23. Those are those that are, that are from men or through, through men, um, certainly. But then there's the uh, capital, the big A, apostle, and that's what he's referring to, an apostle with a big A. That's Paul, and, that, and what he's saying here is that I wasn't, I wasn't sent from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ. I didn't get my message from human beings. I wasn't sent by human beings. I got this right from the risen Savior. Do you hear his foundation? Do you hear his credibility? I encountered the resurrected Savior. And by the way, if you know the story of, of the Apostle Paul, what was he doing before he became a Christian? Anybody? Oh my goodness, he was persecuting Christians. He goes from persecuting Christians to proclaiming the name of Christ to his death, writing two-thirds of the New Testament. What amazing credibility. I mean, that's, you don't get more credibility than that. And that's what he's saying. That's the point that he's trying to make, that uh, he's, he, was, he encountered the risen Christ and is sent by Christ I got this right from the risen Christ. I encountered him myself. I was not, it was not a dream or a vision. I am bringing you a message that is not my opinion, but is from the Bible is what, what he's saying. Now, what we're dealing with here is what is known as epistemology. Huh? Pastor Ray, you're throwing a lot of crazy words at us this morning. Yes, I know. I'm trying to stretch your game a bit, okay? Epistemology. On the count of three, I want you to say epistemology. One, two, three. Hey, watch your language. Um, epistemology, I mean, what in the world? Why would you throw that word out there? Because this is what epistemology is. You can see there on your notes, epistemology is not the science of what you know, but how you know it is true. Epistemology is the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from opinion. It is the study of our method of acquiring knowledge. So here's, here's a good question that when someone says, well, I think that's evil what ISIS is doing. Oh, do you? I do too, but why do you think it's evil? Well, well it just is. <laughs> no, no, what's the authority? Where do, you, where do you get your basis for saying that that's wrong? Well, it just is. You know it's wrong. Well, well yeah, I know it's wrong, and I know and I have a basic belief system of why it's wrong and what I go back to, but what do you go back to? You see, this is what's fascinating is that I've, I've talked with people that don't, don't believe in God, and yet, and yet they would call something immoral, and I would say, well, why is that immoral? Because if, if you believe we're here by random chance and unlimited time, we're just one big accident, then that means that we came from insignificance and eventually we're going to go to insignificance. 
If we came from insignificance and we're going to insignificance, then it seems like to me that everything in between is insignificant. So it doesn't matter whether you call it moral or immoral. Because if we're all going to eventually be, just go off into oblivion, and this is all going to disappear, does it really matter whether someone kills a bunch of people or not? Does it? No, not, no, it doesn't at all, really. But you see, as Christians, we believe much deeper than that. We believe we're here not by accident, random chance, unlimited time, evolutionary process. No, we believe we're here by divine design. We believe we have a sense of purpose behind our life. We were created to have a relationship with the living God and have a sense of purpose and live our lives in such a way that we give glory to him. By the way, when you say that looks crooked, my question is, what is your straight edge? You can't call something crooked unless you have a straight edge somewhere. So all I'm asking, what's your straight edge? Well, I, I read it in a book a couple years ago. I was in a library. So what's the name of the book? Can't remember the name. Not sure who the author is. What? You mean to tell me you're building your whole belief system on a book that you, you read that you can't remember the name or the author or what? See, as Christians, we have unbelievable credibility. I mean, relevancy. And, and I mean, this is, God showed up. How do we know there is a God? How do we know there's a God? Because he showed up here. He walked this planet Earth. He came here. He bled and died, resurrected on the third day. And these apostles went on to spread that news throughout the world to their deaths. Pretty amazing. So ultimate revelation, God showed up here. It's called the incarnation. And special revelation, the book we study. We study fervently. By the way, we spend the first part of Game of Life just kind of unpacking that and trying to understand, is it rational to believe in Jesus? Is it rational to believe in the Bible. Is it rational to believe in a God who, who allows suffering? So we kind of walk through a lot of those really more difficult questions and it's so, so important that not only you know what you believe, but you know why you believe what you believe. And, uh, and so look at this. There are basically three epistemologies. You can put them all in, in these three categories. Here's the first one. Look outside, rationalism, it's tradition. Verse one, not from men is what he says. So you can say the ultimate intellectual authority for what I believe is tradition. What my professor says, what my family says, what my church says is tradition. Uh, I heard the, maybe you've heard the story of the little girl who was asking her mom as she was preparing the, the Thanksgiving ham. She's preparing it to put it in the oven and she cut the ends off the ham and the little girl asked mom and says, so why mom do you cut the ends off the ham? And, and the mom said, well, this is what, what I've always done. This is what your, your, your grandma does and this is what I learned from your grandma. So the little girl goes to grandma and says, grandma, why do you and mom always cut the ends off the ham? And grandma said, well, this is what I've always done. Uh, I learned this from, from great-grandma. So she goes to great-grandma. She says, great-grandma, why do you and grandma and mom cut the ends off the ham? And great-grandma said, I don't know why they do it, but uh, I do it because I never had a pan big enough to fit the ham. <laughs> and so that's how tradition oftentimes works. How many were raised in a traditional kind of church setting uh, like myself, and then, and then if you were like me, a little kind of crazy, you started asking questions like, why do we do that? And they said, I don't, uh, we just do it. That's how we've always done it. And they go, well, there, isn't there a reason for doing that? And, and they would say, no, we, we just need to do it, and you just need to shut up. <laughs> and you just need to follow what we're telling you to do. And it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. I want to know the reason. And they said, basically, it's tradition. 
So could it be that we've lost the meaning behind our tradition? We're just going through the motions and we become a bit robotic. And that's why you have to ask the question, okay, so it's been passed on to you from some professor or from family. By the way, I didn't say this in the earlier service and last night's service, but when you ask a lot of Mormons about why they believe what they believe, they'll use this one, tradition, Bless God, my parents were Mormons and my grandparents were Mormons and I'm going to be a Mormon. I had some friends actually say that. And then they use this, this next one, which is look inside. Emotionalism, follow your heart. It's called the burning in the bosom for them. And so it's fascinating as you kind of explore that. So, so there are three basic uh, epistemologies. Look outside rationalism, tradition. The next one is look inside emotionalism, follow your heart. This is based on verse 1b nor through men. He didn't get this apostleship through men. The word through, the, the root of that is dia, where we get diameter, so through, inside. So the other basic epistemology is not, is, is the, is not the traditional one through tradition, but it's more radical. It's a little bit more of what in our culture we embrace. It's the modern one. It's, it says, hey, look inside, look at your heart. Look at your feelings. How many remember Walt Disney's Jiminy Cricket? Show of hands. Jiminy Cricket. I don't really, really remember him that well because we went to church on Sunday nights, and that's when that program, Walt Disney had his program on for many years. But uh, how many remember what he, uh, Jiminy Cricket would always say? Jiminy Cricket would say, always let your conscience be your be your guide. Oh, Jiminy, serial killers have been doing this for years. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Now, you can let your conscience be your guide as long as your conscience has been calibrated by God's word. Because that is certainly one, one of the ways that God speaks to us, but it's got to be calibrated by God's word. If I were to sit down with everyone here, I'll bet you to a greater or lesser degree, all of us either have a conscience that's, that's too tight or too loose. In other words, it's, it's oversensitive or maybe undersensitive, and so therefore it needs to be recalibrated according to God's word. We just finished up a whole book study through the book of Judges, and that's what they did. That's what those folks did. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Judges 21, 25. Remember how they ended? A big crater in smoke. That's how they ended. It was devastating. These people who were God's people were just like the world, Sodom and Gomorrah. They had no king in Israel. Because they had no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Follow your heart. That doesn't sound like a good way to go. And that's the direction of our country for the most part. It's either this rationalism or emotionalism, tradition or follow your heart. Look outside, look inside. So what Paul is saying is that the apostolic revelation is not, is not speculation. Look outside, look inside. But revelation, it's revelation, not from men or through men, but from God. Look up, look up, revelation. That's your next fill in the blank. Look up, revelation from God. As I stated, how do we know there is a God? He showed up here, incarnation. He walked this planet Earth. We know that. He died on the cross. He resurrected on the third day. And then there was a bunch of people that wrote it down, and they gave their life in the, in the process of writing this down for us. And this has been preserved for years, and it's, it's amazing when you look at the credibility of what we have here. And so he says in verse one, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Boom! Right there. I love it. 
In other words, the apostolic revelation was from the very mouth of Jesus. Acts 9, we see where, where Paul encountered Christ. This letter was written by Paul around A.D. 50, which means it was written about 15 to 20 years after the death of Christ. That's pretty close. That's pretty close to, to the time when Jesus, when he encountered Christ. 15 to 20 years, that's nothing. Tell you what, I'm, I'm moving into probably the next couple of years. My wife and I will have been together, you know, for well over 40 years. And I remember when I first met her, believe me. And I remember our, you know, our, our honeymoon and our wedding day and so many details. And believe me, if you have encountered the living Lord and Savior as Paul did, you're going to remember that. You're going to write it down. And as I stated, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. It had a major impact on his life. So the next time you're sitting down and you're talking over coffee with your friends, and they're unbelievers, and maybe they're even atheists, and they begin to spout some beliefs about what they believe in, ask them this, what is your epistemological authority for saying that? Okay, maybe you can't remember, you probably can't pronounce that word. I struggled to pronounce it. I had to look down and look to make sure I was pronouncing it appropriately. But just say, hey, what's your authority? What do you mean authority? What's the basis of what you believe? And here's what's crazy about it is that you can back most people, Americans, into a corner and let them find holes in their own belief system by just asking some basic questions like that. So why do you believe that? Where did you get that? What is the credibility of this person that you, you're building this on. So you mean to tell me you're gonna build your whole eternity on this? What happens when we die? Why do you believe that? I mean, just walk them through that. And so that's important. So what Paul is saying here, really, and as we walk through this, is that not only is it important what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. You don't let tradition or your conscience be your guide. You let what Paul says be your guide, God's word, revelation from God. It's not by speculation that we know there's a God, but by revelation. God has revealed himself to us. Now we get to the most important part of this is what Christians believe. What is the gospel that these apostles were willing to die for to get it around the world? Verses three through five lays that out for us. It's the whole gospel. I love what Jerry Bridges says. He says, the gospel is not only the most important message in history, it is the only essential message in history. Let me add to that. I believe that this message is really what hangs in the balance, life or death. That's how important the gospel message is because what's hanging in the balance is life and death, heaven or hell. So let me put you on a spot here. I want you to do this. I've done this with all, all the other two services and I'm gonna do it here for this third service here. So I want you to turn to the folks next to you and see if you can tell them just in a few words, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Tell the people sitting next to you what the gospel is. Real quick, do that. Okay, did you guys get that? You guys sharing some good stuff? Okay. Here's what I find with most, with most people when I begin to ask them this question. Very critical question, really important question. Most people, most people in America today, and most people that have rejected the gospel, when you ask them, so what is it that you've actually rejected? They couldn't even tell you what they've rejected. They're, they're telling you what is not actually the gospel. In fact, most people would describe it as good advice. 
at what you must do to be right with God. They put the emphasis on what you must do and it becomes like good advice. And I see a lot of people reject the gospel and they describe the gospel as good advice at what you must do and that's not even the gospel. You're rejecting something that's not even the gospel. It's doubtful whether you even really understand the gospel. See, the gospel is not good advice of what you must do to be right with God. It is good news. That's what the gospel means. It means good news. Listen, this is the best news you have ever heard. Or you haven't heard it. When I said you would feel like a person who's just won a billion dollar lottery, believe me. This is the best news you have ever heard. It is good news about what he has done to make us right with God. It's a done deal. It's a done deal. One of the, I mean, I love these songs that we were singing. There's a phrase that I wrote down from one of the songs. It is done, the veil is torn, he has won, I am free. I mean, do you hear that? See, see to the degree that you're not experiencing freedom, in your life is to the degree that you don't understand that. You're still in part of this as good advice at what you must do as opposed to good news about what has been done. It's been done. It's complete. It's available for you. Put your faith in Jesus. Walk in the reality of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. Let me give it to you here. Uh, First, he delivers us, he rescues us, verse 4b, to deliver us. Jesus is unlike any other founder of any other religion. All other religions give you, as I stated, good advice. In fact, if someone were to ask you, what's the difference between Christianity and, uh, and the gospel? Oh, I'm sorry, I just said the same thing, didn't I? What's the difference between, <laughs> this is a third service, okay. Uh, I need another swig of this, don't I? Uh. Okay, I can think straighter now. Uh, So what's the difference between the gospel, Christianity, and all the other major religions of our world today? If you listen to them, they're all about what you must do, what you must do, and Christianity is what has been done for you. Major, major difference between the two. All other religions, good advice. Christianity gives us good news. I was a a paramedic firefighter for a number of years with Phoenix Fire Department, and we never showed up to uh, any call where someone needed rescuing. For instance, someone that was uh, possibly drowning in a canal or in, in the pool or somewhere, or, you know, wherever it might be. We didn't show up and throw them a manual on how to swim. Never did that. I mean, I went through, uh, you know, water rescue classes and did all that. We never did that. No, we got in the water and went after them. Jesus didn't show up and throw us a manual on how to swim. Jesus didn't come to teach us how to swim, but to listen to me, but to rescue us. It doesn't mean that he doesn't teach us. And other times when people say, oh, what is the Christian, you know, what is, uh, what is the gospel? Immediately, most people go, well, it's people who follow Jesus. Well, yeah, following Jesus is certainly part of it, but that's the result. That's the result of having been rescued. You gotta be rescued first. You are drowning without him. And what I find is that there's two types of people, those who, who need rescuing and know it, and those who need rescuing and don't know it. And it's the revelation of God that brings you to your awareness that, oh my goodness, I need rescuing. And to the degree that you need gre- rescuing, the more the rescuer 
becomes beautiful to you. See, oftentimes when I say, uh, are you living in the, with this indescribable and indestructible joy? It's oftentimes because we don't realize our desperate need for him. We're not living in the reality of our, of our lostness, of, of our fallenness. And maybe we're not spending enough time in his word because I'll tell you what, when I study God's word, when I look at the full-length mirror of God's word, I'm reminded of how, how far I fall short of what God wants, but oh my goodness, it it puts me and presses me into his arms and into his love. I realize how much I need him. Oh, I need rescuing. And oh my goodness, I have a wonderful rescuer in Jesus. And so he came to deliver us, to rescue us. The second, oh, there's a couple verses here that I, I got, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's what Jesus said. Not a way, but the way, the way to God, the truth about God. You want to get to know God, you get to know God through Jesus and the very life of God. Second, by giving himself for our sins. By giving himself for our sins. Verse 4a, who gave himself for our sins, for B, to deliver us from the present evil age. You'll notice there on your notes, the word for, the Greek, in behalf of our sins. He was our substitute. So another theological phrase here is that uh, substitutionary atonement. He was our substitute that brought atonement at one moment, paid the debt that we owed, took on the wrath of God. And so we, we got... Uh, his record, his perfect record, and he took our imperfect record upon the cross. That's part of that. In fact, we'll be doing another water baptism at the end of uh, October, and those are great events. And what people are doing when they get baptized in water, they're identifying with the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What, they, what he did, he did for them. And so there's another term that we often use. It's called justification. You guys familiar with that? And we'll define it like this, justification, just as if you have never sinned. That's how the Father looks at us because we put our faith in Jesus and Jesus died in our place. But it goes beyond that. Not only just as if we've never sinned, but just as if we lived a perfect life. The perfect life that Jesus lived. He looks at us just as if we lived that perfect life because he took all of our sin. That's all, all part of that. And then evil age, the Greek word, so he, to deliver us from the present evil age, the Greek here is not a period of time, but the current world system ruled by Satan. And you are right now either living under the rule of this present evil age or under the rule of the atoning work of Jesus Christ who has set you free from the penalty of sin, is in the process of setting you free from the power of sin. And one of these days, he will set you free from the very presence of sin when you go to be with him for all eternity. So I think the best story that helps us to understand this is a story by Ernest Gordon. He was a British soldier in World War II, and I think it best represents this whole idea of substitutionary atonement and Christ being our substitute. Ernest Gordon was a British soldier in World War II. He was captured by the Japanese, and he was made to work with thousands of others on what was called the Death Railroad, which was a railroad along the valley of the Kwai River in Thailand, the classic movie, Bridge Over the River Kwai. You guys familiar with that movie? It's a great movie. During World War II, POWs were made to work on that railroad. The conditions were so awful that one to 2,000 prisoners died for every five miles that was built. It got so bad that Ernest Gordon in his memoirs said that the men were, at, were all at each other's throats. They had gone back to the law of the jungle, he said. In fact, and I quote, part of his memoirs here, death was everywhere 
And as conditions worsened, our lives became poisoned by selfishness, lies, hate, and fear. Formerly, we had huddled together because of our fears, believing there was safety in numbers. We had still shown some consideration for one another. Now that was gone, completely swept away. Existence had become so miserable, the odds so heavy against us, that nothing mattered except to survive. We lived by the rule of the jungle red in tooth and claw, the evolutionary law of the, of the survival of the fittest. It was a case of I look out for myself and to hell with everyone else. Everybody was his own keeper and all the restraints of morality were gone. But one afternoon, something happened. A shovel was missing at the end of the day. The officer in charge became enraged. He demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else... But when no one in the squadron volunteered that they had taken the shovel, the officer took his gun out and threatened to kill every one of them on the spot. Suddenly, one man stepped forward. I took it, he said. The officer put away his gun, picked up a shovel, and beat the man to death on the spot. But at the second tool check, this time no shovel was missing. There had actually been a miscount at the first check. The word spread like wildfire through the whole camp. An innocent man was willing to die to save everyone else. The the incident had a huge effect. We began to treat each other like brothers. Another man was caught trading with the local uh, people the tie for medicines for a dying comrade and was sentenced to death. But he submitted to it, reading from a little Bible, cheering up the chaplain right before his execution. Death was still with us, no doubt, no doubt about that. But we were being slowly freed from its destructive grip. End of quote. What happened? What is this about? What was going on here? The sacrificial love of one man giving his life for the rest changed a jungle into a community. And that was just a human being. That was a human being. Jesus Christ gave his life for you. He gave his life for you. He stepped forward and was beaten into the ground to save us from our sins. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I love the verse. It's uh, 521. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Every murder, every rape, every child molestation, every act of racism, every sin in thought, word, and deed was placed upon Christ on the cross For you and I, God's holy son, the wonder of the cross is that it satisfies both the love and the justice of God. The cross shows us that God is holy, sin is ugly, and salvation is costly. He was rejected so that you could be accepted. Think about that. He was punished so that you could be pardoned. He was reviled so that you could be reconciled. He was forsaken so that you could be forgiven. He was abandoned so that you could be adopted into the family of God. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. 1 John 3, 1. 
He was executed so that we can be exonerated. His humiliation leads to your liberation, to your freedom. So let me ask you this. What is the one thing in your life that you are most ashamed of? The thing that you regret, the thing that you don't want anybody to know about, Maybe it's not anything that you've done, but maybe it's something that's been done to you. What is the sin that you have committed that, man, you just can't shake it? It just, it haunts you, it hassles you, it harasses you, the guilt and shame of that. Or maybe, like I said, it's the sin that's been committed to you and against you. Listen to me. Jesus paid for that on the cross. Jesus paid for that on the cross. Jesus paid for that on the cross. Stop hanging yourself on the cross. Stop beating yourself up over what, over what you've done or what has been done to you. He came to bring you freedom unlike you have ever, ever experienced before. Stop letting that event in your life hassle you, harass you, or haunt you anymore because there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Never, ever, ever justified, just as if you've never sinned before, just as if you lived a perfect life. You stand before him. You have access into the throne room of God. It is done. The veil is torn. He has won. I am free. That's the gospel. And see, we fail to kind of live in the reality of that, though. And that's why I am looking forward to this, this series as we work through this book, man, because we're just going to bask in the reality of what he's done for us. Now, if Jesus isn't your substitute, then you will pay for all of your sins. Either Jesus pays for your sins or, or you must pay for your sins. See, if you don't accept Jesus as your advocate, as your attorney, then he becomes your judge. It's one or the other. That's the option. That's what we, we, we've got, we're given here in Scripture. Now, let me move you to the last point here. Why would God do this? Why would God rescue us by substituting his son for us, number three, according to God's will and for his glory? We see that in verses four and five. According to the will of our God and Father and to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Now let's go back to what William Hollins wrote in his journal. He said at a certain point when Luther was summarizing the epistle of the Galatians, he said his burden fell off and everything changed in his, in his whole life. What were the words that uh, Luther said? What was the essence of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians? Let me read to you the whole passage. He says, Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud and, and at the words where Luther says, what? What have we, have we then nothing to do? No, nothing, but only to accept of him who of God is made unto us our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption 
And at those words, there came such a power over me that I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant, and my heart was so filled with peace and love, I burst into tears. What was happening? The reality of the gospel. One of the verses that came to mind here for me was 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and goodness. Whoa, I love it. Nothing better than that. I mean, this is crazy. And so the only way you can become a Christian is not by pointing to your qualifications, but by admitting you have no qualifications, which is the only qualification. Until you admit you have no qualifications, you're not qualified. See, the gospel is that all you need is need. And that's why so many people aren't saved. It's because, it's because of pride. Because all you need is need. Listen to me, don't let pride keep you from the greatest gift you'll ever receive. Verse three, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, positional, that's our position. God's favor, God's favor. You have God's favor. Oh, what's gonna happen? If I believe that, if I live in the reality of it, peace, that's practical. So grace is positional, peace is practical from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, this is better than winning a billion dollar lottery. Better than winning a billion dollar lottery. Next week, we're gonna talk about, the title is Astonished by, by the Gospel. And if you're not astonished by the gospel, it's because you don't know the gospel. So come back next week, we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna talk about it more. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. How could you not love someone who died for you? What's the logic of that? How could you not want to know him and praise him and serve him and want to be like him and, and tell the world about him? If Jesus hanging on the cross for you doesn't break your heart, then God, God help you because nothing else will. So Father God, thank you. Thank you for sending your son to rescue us from our sins and to deliver us from this present evil age. By your will, for your glory, we, we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus to save us. We want to live our lives fully devoted to Jesus, not out of pride, fear, or duty, but out of a heart full of gratitude and love. When we are tempted, may we remember what our sins cost Jesus on the cross and that deep soul satisfaction can only be found in him. So Father, empower us to reach an ever-increasing number of people with this gospel message in our community as we faithfully and generously give of our time, our talent, our money here at Desert Breeze for your glory in our joy. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. God bless you guys. Love you guys a lot. Have a great week.